0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Peter Ames Carlin to discuss his book, Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records, From Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac to Madonna to Prince. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Peter Ames Carlin, author of Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records, from Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac to Madonna to Prince.
2: Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me.
1: And so one quibble with the title. I mean, you couldn't fit Bob Newhart in there?
2: <laughs> you know, if if we had tried to put in every significant artist who'd ever been associated with Warner Brothers Records, it would have been the longest title in the history of literature. So, yeah, no, I'm sorry. We had to we had to we had to leave out Bob.
1: Oh, those choices. They hurt. They hurt. (laughs) And the reason you have so many artists to choose from is because this was a phenomenally spectacular record company. Can you give us just the quick soundbite version of just how successful this record company was?
2: Well, during its its heyday from around 1967 through uh, 1994, uh, Warner Brothers Records, which was also associated with labels like Reprise, which was its sister label at first, but then also labels like Sire and uh, – um, 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 well, a whole bunch of others, they put, they released albums by artists ranging from Madonna to REM to Jimi Hendrix, Fleetwood Mac, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, the Grateful Dead, um, just on and on and on the Eagles, you know, Asylum was one of their labels. Um, and it was almost like, you know, if you go through the roster of the rock and roll hall of fame, um a huge percentage of all of them um, were associated with, with with Warner Brothers records.
1: While also making room for, and excuse my language, for a bunch of weirdos, freaks, and outliers like Van Dyke Parks and Randy Newman, who later on goes on to become massively successful, but they carried him for a long time. You know, Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, all kinds of oddities. How did they make room for, So, I mean, how did they combine that kind of commercial success with that kind of, sheltering and nurturing attitude for what are frankly pretty eccentric non-commercial artists in some cases.
2: Well, one of the things that we that's easy to forget now is that a lot of those successful artists I just mentioned, you know, particularly like like the Grateful Dead and Jimi Hendrix were also completely non-commercial freaky artists when they signed with Warners. But it was through Warners, you know, investing in these artists and believing in them uh, that made them into essentially, you know, the mainstream artists and eventually the pillars of what we now think of as as, you know, the most commercial kinds of popular music um you know i mean the the guy who was uh the chairman of the company for a long time um and you know probably the most one of the most visionary executives ever in pop music um this is a guy named mo austin who in 1967 actually sat down with his a and staff you know the guys that you know uh-huh. that that find the artists and produce the records and and kind of steer people's careers and said hey you know we need to stop trying to make hit records let's just make good records and turn those into hits and that sort of artist friendly music centric philosophy is what you know actually catapulted the company to such a successful monolith
1: and one last little bit of housekeeping I want to cover before we dive into Mo Austin his philosophy and uh, and their road to success because it wasn't a guaranteed thing but This Warner Brothers, a lot of times in my heyday coming up, it was W.E.A. It was always Warner Brothers, Electra and Atlantic. And you mentioned Electra and Atlantic, but they're sister companies. And this book is focused just on Warner and sometimes the relationship at the very highest level with the Atlantic and, and Electra executives. Is that a good way to put it?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, they were all part of the same corporation which was, you know, Warner Brothers at first and then eventually became Time Warner, uh and we uh that Warner Electro Atlantic um was a, you know, that actually was the name of kind of the umbrella organization within Warner Brothers that housed the, you know, the you know, the record labels for the longest time and and so they were both, you know, obviously part of the same corporation but still you know friendly mostly friendly rivals with one another
1: And there's a pretty interesting part of the book where you talk about visiting their offices. I think it was in the 90s. It might have been in the 2000s. But either way, it gave you this sort of nostalgic feeling for your childhood, where you had described growing up being raised by parents that you described as part of countercultural idealism. It was (laughs) the water I swam in as a child. And I was certain it was only a matter of time before it took over all of mainstream society. Elaborate on that a little bit, how Warner Brothers fit into that And did it not take over society if it was so successful? What happened?
2: That's a good question. You know, I mean, I was born in the early 60s. And so, you know, by the late 60s, early 70s, um, I was aware of what was going on in pop culture, I was, you know, a little precocious, um, particularly with popular music, but that was due in part because my parents were these kind of bourgeois hippie types who, you know, were very, very sympathetic to that hippie counterculture, even though we weren't exactly, you know, a part of the hippie counterculture, you know, we, we lived in a house and not in a yurt, you know, I mean, it was you know the center central part of Seattle in the late 60s, early 70s. But it was a time of kind of there was this sort of the rising youth counterculture, you know, the hippie counterculture that had started forming it really in the mid 60s was coming of age you know that that that, that the, you know the baby boom generation people were out of college at that point largely or finishing college and were moving into mainstream society and kind of you know in some places you know, making, you know, making an impact, you know, you saw the, you know, there was like this new generation of long haired sort of business people and bearded executives and, and a whole kind of vibe taking over, uh, parts of, you know, mainstream corporate society. I remember in the Pacific Northwest, at least there was a bank, uh, in the early 70s that, that was called people's bank and you know how they always say in, in ads for banks they say member FDIC um, th- their ads would always end member FDIC in the human race so so there was this kind of there was this kind of rampant humanitarianism you know that that, that was that seemed to be sprouting and you know it was really fashion at the time i didn't realize it because i was too young you know i hadn't seen the we you know the cultural wheel spinning you know you, you begin to recognize patterns and see how you know hip ideas kind of fil- you know get filtered into the mainstream just basically as you know promotional gambits and then you know f- fizzle off while you know, the next thing comes around. But at the time, it it struck me as a cultural revolution. And, you know, this idea that there were these, that, you know, that there was going to be kind of a new funky sort of hipness, sort of essentially sprouting all over and eventually taking over mainstream corporate society was, yeah, I, I just took it for granted. But at the time, you know, I was 10 years old at the time. So what did I know? Um, and Warner Brothers Records sort of seemed kind of front and center you know my folks would come home with these records and i'd be looking at them and uh you know they you know warner brothers records always had these really really funky and cool uh uh you know liner notes that were written by their main ad guy named stan Cornyn, that were all about you know this benevolent record company and you know and 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 it just had the sense that um You know, there was a new sort of that, you know, that Warner's was kind of front and center in this this wave of of hipper, more evolved, you know, way of doing business. And the thing about Warner Brothers is that they really did kind of personify that in their ad, you know, not just in their image, but also in the way they went about doing their business. And, uh, you know, and they and behind that attitude and way, you know, they, you know, they were incredibly successful for an incredibly long period of time. And I, you know, you would think that 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 would have made an impact in the long term. But, you know, weirdly, it kind of didn't.
1: Yeah, there's a hard stop in 1994 in your book and for good reason. But we'll get to that. But first, I want to play a song. And this weaves together some of the characters we'll be talking about and kind of the first tastes test case for Warner's real willingness to indulge eccentricity and give people chances. This is Harper's Bazaar doing a song called High Coin written by a kid named Van Dyke Parks. That was High Coin by Harper's Bazaar, produced by Lenny Wanaker, and featuring a young Ted Templeman on vocals, but Van Dyke Parks was the songwriter, and he's somebody that Warner Brothers poured a lot of money into as an artist, and then launched a really unusual advertising campaign talking about how much money they lost making the quote, record of the year. Tell us a little bit about Van Dyke Parks, 1967 Lenny Warneker and how they ended up doing that.
2: Well, Van Dyke was this, you know, songwriter, singer, songwriter, arranger, producer, composer guy, you know, a super smart, intellectual kind of whiz kid who had uh, actually grown up in the deep south in, in Mississippi and in Louisiana. And... um but then ended up he had this amazing backstory because he he was a brilliant young you know soprano singer in uh, boys choirs and he ended up uh, getting a scholarship to the uh, American Boys Choir School in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, y- you know and and in, in order to earn his tuition he would you know <laughs> you know he, he you know he was a soloist in uh, uh, this opera uh, Amal and the Night. Uh, I want to say the Night Rangers that was uh, presented live on NBC in the early 50s. And then he got a job as a recurring character on Jackie Gleason's, you know, fantastically influential sitcom, uh, The Honeymooners. Uh, He was a regular on another sitcom and and co-starred as a kid in a movie with Grace Kelly in the late 50s called The Swan Um, and then got into music and eventually joined, formed a folk duo with his brother and moved to LA and became part of this kind of hip young pop music cognoscenti in uh, in, you know in in Hollywood in the early mid 60s uh, and was involved with a lot of the artists who formed bands that we've all heard of like the birds and Buffalo Springfield and you know and then he worked with Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and kind of gave him some ideas that he incorporated into the song good vibrations and when Brian set out to work on On what was going to be this extremely revolutionary psychedelic album called Smile. In 1966, he got Van Dyke to co-write and help him produce, you know, all the music for it. Uh, And of course, the project sort of fell apart kind of behind Brian's psychic problems. But Right when Smile fell apart, um, that's when he got to, you know, uh, became acquainted with Lenny Warrenker, who was at the time a young kind of junior A&R man slash producer for Warners. And um, right at the time when Mo Austin went to his A&R guys and gave them that speech about, hey, let's, you know, let's stop trying to make hit records. Let's make good records. That's when Lenny brought in Van Dyke and, uh, and, and Mo Austin recognized the brilliance of this kid and signed him up, you know, not only to be an artist, but also a staff arranger and producer. And, you know, and Van Dyke ended up working hand in hand with Lenny, um, on a lot of those like Harper's Bazaar singles and, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of different sort of early influential records that were, you know, medium sized hits for the company. So when um, Van Dyke was starting his first solo record called Song Cycle, he was eventually he, you know, and he, and Lenny was going to help him produce it. Um, you know, it eventually, you know, basically they were given uh, carte blanche go off, make whatever kind of music you want to make, take as much time as you need to take to make it and spend as much money as you need. And they came up with this incredibly revolutionary album, um, that was in production, you know, even, you know, most of it before *Sgt. Pepper came out, you know, the Beatles revolutionary psychedelic album from, you know, that came out in June of 67. And, um, when Song Cycle came out in uh, the end of '67, it was immediately celebrated uh, by, you know, ba- you know what was then a very young but still, you know, increasingly influential kind of rock and roll sort of uh, critical cognoscente. You know, the people in Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone and and kind of the hipper pop culture magazines like Esquire you know, there was this 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 great chorus of people saying, like, this is the coolest, hippest, uh, you know, most avant-garde album of the year, you know, and it's the same year that Sgt. Pepper came out. It's the same year that Hendrix's first album came out. A lot of really important, in, you know, innovative music came out that year, but Song Cycle was celebrated by the critics, at least, as, you know, central among them, you know, the most daring revolutionary album that anyone had ever heard. But of course, you know, it was just a little beyond the grasp of 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 pop listeners and it barely sold any copies. Um, and so as after a year or so, you know, Mo and Joe Smith, who was the kind of Mo's Colleague as the president of Warner Brothers Records, while while Mo was the president of Reprise. and at the time they were sister labels, essentially equals at at what was the company that was then called Warner Reprise, um, kept trying to promote the album, and they uh, they they uh, took that that ad man I mentioned earlier, Stan Cornyn, and said, hey, you know, can you write an ad that that talks about this record? Uh, You know, and tries to convince people to buy it after all. And and Stan was inventing a new persona for the label, which was this, you know, which was essentially this hip, honest, you know, funky new generation music label. You know, and so he wrote this ad, essentially saying, you know, how we lost thirty five thousand five hundred nine dollars and fifty nine cents on the quote album of the year close quote, and then open paren. Damn it. Close paren. And essentially was this very, very funny ad being honest, saying, hey, we spent all this money on this record. It's a huge flop. But people, you know, but the critics love it and you really ought to buy it. You know, it was just this very self-aware sort of in some ways, you know, self-lacerating ad celebrating a big commercial failure which was i you know the first time in pop history that a record company had come out and said you know basically said we made a record that's a huge flop you know but we're still proud of it
1: and van dyke parks never appreciated that ad <clears throat> and maybe that helped them only make one more album because they lost probably more than 35,000 dollars i mean they spent at least 85,000 you say on that album, one of the most expensive albums ever made up to that point. And yet, people like a young Peter Buck of R.E.M. were reading his ads, and later that greatly influences his decision to go to Warner Brothers. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is China Cat Sunflower by The Grateful Dead. And that was a Grateful Dead's China Cat Sunflower from that unpronounceable Axiomuxa whatever album, <laughs> which was, uh, uh,
2: Say it Oxumosa again. is how I, how I was raised to pronounce it. I, I think that's right.
1: Your parents were much hipper than mine, who didn't know the album existed. So, um, but. You know, that's the kind of hip underground stuff that they were also invested in when they were investing in, in Van Deck Parks. The Grateful Dead, on the other hand, do eventually pay off commercially. But before we get there, let's backtrack and talk about the beginnings of this record label. Jack Warner, the old time Hollywood mogul, started this in nineteen fifty-eight with a mandate, make some money on music and no rock and roll. Yeah. Here's, Tell us about that and how, how they got past that little hurdle.
2: Well, you know, I mean, in the mid 50s, there was this idea that even though rock and roll was, you know, this new generation style of music was, you know, was surging and Elvis was huge and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and these guys, you know, a lot of the older generation of people, uh, you know, in entertainment were like, oh, God, this is horrible. This sucks. We hate this. You know, this should not exist. So we're going the way we're going to deal with this is ignore it. Um and so when Jack Warner, um who was sick of seeing uh, you know, some of you know his contracted movie and TV stars becoming, you know, basically making hit records for other labels, you know, and also Warner Brothers movies was putting out a lot, you know, in, in, in adapting a lot of hit Broadway shows into hit uh musical movies um and what he was you know based, you know tired of seeing those records coming out on other companies labels and becoming big hits for them uh he decided to launch a warner brothers movie company record business um, and so um warner brothers records launched in in 1958 but with this edict that they can do anything they want become a world-class record company, but you can't do it with by signing any artists that make the music that is the most popular music of the day, uh, which I guess felt good for him in terms of <laughs> thinking that he could steer pop culture. But on the other hand, it was uh, uh, not a, de- you know, a policy that was designed to make the company successful. And in fact, you know, the company for the first couple of years was an enormous failure. Part of the problem was that he only wanted them to spend $2 million to, you know, launch this this entire label you know and that included all the money to sign artists and so no major artists wanted to sign with a fledgling record company that was only going to give them you know a moderate amount of money you know some small fraction of two million dollars even at that time that was not a lot of money Um, and so they ended up having to essentially uh, you know, the guy that was the first president of the labels, a fellow named Jim Conkling, had been in the in the industry for some time and sort of come up through Capitol Records and and Columbia Records. And uh, uh, he was also married to a woman who was a musician, and and her a lot of her relatives were musicians. And so what he Conkling did is that he signed these kind of you know, below, you know, under the table deals with artists who were signed with other labels for them to record instrumental stuff. And, you know, uh, basically under pseudonyms, um, or no name at all. And then he or the company would create identities for these artists. And, and that's what they did. So when their first dozen albums came out in the fall of 1958, um, most of them were credited to, uh, artists who didn't really exist. Um, including one, uh, uh, who was a guitar player who they, uh, they eventually, uh, named Ira, Iron Strings, you know, this imaginary guy and his first record, uh, was called, um, music for people with $3 and 98 cents plus tax, if any, you know? So there was this weird kind of funky sense of humor um at Warner's, you know, intriguingly enough, you know, 10 years before the hippie and, you know, the, before the hippies and and that other kind of counterculture sense of humor really took root. Uh, well, there's
1: a connecting thread because Stan Cornyn, who does the Van Dyke Parks ad later, is the guy who titles that f- kid fresh out of Pomona College. So there's kind of that Mad Magazine or Beatnik era precursor The hippies already present in the label from day one.
2: Yeah 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 it's just this sort of again you know this kind of self referential sort of self lacerating sense of humor there was another there was another uh uh album that they uh titled i think the subtitle at least was um unpopular music for popular people you know this idea of you know trying to sell these collections of songs to people saying like yeah most people don't dig this stuff but you know but but we've got this kind of funky backwards way of looking at it that might appeal to people, you know, but at first it took them a while to connect, you know, culturally with people and those first records really didn't do it.
1: Yeah, there's a great story you tell in the book about a promo exec that they had brought in named uh, Joel Friedman, who was an ex Billboard guy who had all the contact information for all the labels' marketing departments, and he sent out a memo to all of them from the quote national office saying you've got to push this Ira Ironstrings album,
2: and people started doing it. That was a great yeah. Jam. The promotional staffs of Columbia and Capitol, which were the you know obviously Warner's biggest rivals. Uh, You know, they were the definitive record companies of the day, like somehow he bamboozled all their promotions guys to go off and start working this Ira Ironstrings record, you know, much to the, you know, unhappiness of their bosses, you know. and so one day, Jim Conkling, you know, like his phone rings and uh, he picks up and it's the president of Capitol Records going, you son of a bitch. And he had no idea what the guy was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually, you know, but then the thing is, then that kind of that whole scam, you know, even after it was discovered, it was a huge benefit for Warners because, you know, at, you know, someone at Billboard, I, I think at Billboard or Variety wrote a big story about how Warners clever, you know, promotion. Ocean's executives managed to bamboozle these other companies into doing their work for them. You know, not that it helps sell any Iron Strings records, but they they sure gave it a try.
1: And they kind of get their bacon saved by a TV series called 77 Sunset Strip, and they have some novelty hits off that. And that saves them because there's a point at which the money people for Warners want to cut the cord, but they're owed like half a million dollars in in. Outstanding payments from distributors. So they get this reprieve. They sign um a young they sign the Everly Brothers. They get past the rock and roll note ban enough, you know, to sign Bill Haley and the Everly Brothers. I guess they're white and kind of mellow, so that passed the sniff test. But they're really saved by a young comic named Bob Newhart that we really unfortunately can't put him in the title of the book. Don't have time to talk about him here on the show, but has this runaway hit comedy album, The Button Down Mind of Bob Newhart. Then they uh, get Alan Sherman, who um, has the famous Hello Mudda, Hello Fada song, that uh, another massive hit. They discovered him at, the, at Conklin's Farewell Roast, which is another great story we don't have time to go into here. But I want to take a sponsor break, and then uh, I want you to tell us about the other half of the Warner Reprise recipe. And so Warner Brothers, by the mid-60s, is actually quite a profitable label. But they decide to acquire another label that also has a no rock and roll edict. Tell us about Reprise, who was behind that, and how they tied one arm behind their back.
2: Well, Reprise was a label that uh, Frank Sinatra founded in 1960. And the reason that he... uh, he decided to start his own label was that even though he was signed to Capitol Records at the time there was some quirk, you know some quirk of his contract that said he could also record uh, late uh, albums for another label if he decided he wanted to do that. I don't quite understand how they signed him to a non-exclusive contract, but they did. So he decided that what he wanted to do at first was try to buy Verve Records, which was kind of the leading art, you know, boutique jazz label of the day. Um, he couldn't make that deal go, but um, so out of frustration, he just decided you know not only to start his own label, but also take this this kind of smart young junior executive he'd met at Verve named Mo Austin signed him up to become essentially the day-to-day leader of Reprise Records. Um, so Mo, who had you know learned the trade at at, at Verve, Uh, you know, came into reprise with Frank and, you know, Frank essentially made most or, you know, basically all of the A&R decisions. And, you know, you know, not only was he on the label, but he signed all his buddies, you know, to come, you know, to be the to be, you know, to to be the artists of his boutique label. So Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. and a lot of these other kind of, uh, sort of saloon type singers that he had spent, you know, gotten to know, you know, in his career, uh, you know, in the forties and the fifties and, and, you know, which was, Fine. They were, you know, fine artists to a great degree, but 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 just not exactly tooled for the early 60s, because Frank also was, you know, hated rock and roll even more than Jack Warner did uh, and was extremely strict with his no rock and roll edict. Uh, But, you know, within a year or two, he also began to realize that, you know, you're actually going to lose your shirt if you don't cater to you know, the current trends in popular music. And so, you know, Mo and then a new sort of head of A&R they hired named Jimmy Bowen came in and began to look at those, you know, the sales records and, and went to Frank and said, look, you know we got to cut loose some of these old saloon singers you've got because none of them are selling any records, you know, and then Jimmy kind of started crafting records for, you know, not just for like Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, but also for Frank that, that incorporated more sort of rock and roll type rhythms and instrumentations and just sort of very slowly began to pivot them in the direction of rock and roll. And Mo, meantime, had done a deal with a label uh in England um uh called Pi and they had and essentially they worked a deal where Pi could distribute you know reprise records in, in England and Europe and and reprise could could distribute their you know Pi records in America. Uh, but they didn't have to sign these artists. But Pi signed a lot of rock and roll artists, like the Kinks, for instance. And so in 1964, When uh, Mo began to hear about this song called You Really Got Me, you know, the hard rocking, you know, the first smash hit that the Kinks had, um, he jumped on it very, very quickly and got it out in the U.S. And since he didn't have to sign the Kinks, he didn't have to go through, you know, didn't have to try to buck any no rock and roll edict. Uh, And the record came out and was a huge hit. And I think, you know, the font of cash that came flooding in at that point began to swivel a A lot of executive heads you know uh, Frank's level and you know and and higher and by then you know in 1963 actually was the point at which reprise ended up sort of teaming up with Warner's because Jack Warner was very eager to sign Frank Sinatra to a movie contract and part of the deal was his taking on essentially merging reprise with Warner Brothers records And, uh, you know, and Frank somehow still managed to maintain, you know, quite, you know, a lot of authority over what was going to happen with Reprise, uh, you know, and became a part owner of, I think, the whole, you know, Warner Reprise uh, company. Um, And so when you know the kinks became a hit then they just began very slowly to sort of incorporate sort of you know uh, more rock and roll and then by 65 66 and definitely by the second half of 1966 they you know basically mo austin who would of course was still the president of uh of reprise and and Joe Smith, who was then a president of, of Warner Brothers, uh, kind of had the go ahead to sign anyone who they thought would be commercial. And that's when you began to see acts like the electric prunes and. In the late summer of 66, Joe signed The Grateful Dead and and Mo was, you know, already negotiating with and 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 eventually signed Jimi Hendrix, both of both of them very, very avant-garde hippie artists that nobody had heard of at the time.
1: Yeah, and I wanna give a little background on Joe Smith, because we don't have time to dive into it, but he was a DJ out of Boston who made his bones at Warner Brothers with Peter, Paul, and Mary and devised a brilliant promotional campaign of taking them to college campuses in the early 60s, which resulted in a massive, massive number one hit album, several number one hit albums for Peter, Paul, and Mary. So Joe Smith made his bones in the folk scene and he didn't just sign the Grateful Dead, he wanted to get another 250 grand and sign up the whole San Francisco scene, which the corporate bosses wouldn't let him do they said let's wait and see and while they were waiting and seeing of course you know other record companies RCA gets Jefferson Airplane, Columbia gets Janis Joplin and Big Brother, Columbia spends a fortune on Moe and Grape and runs them into the ground with terrible promotion and mm. the corporate brain sort of realized hey this Joe and Mo team knows what they're doing let's give them a free hand and we talked about Moe and his edict and so at this point, they've gotten the the green light. But I want you to tell a little bit about how did the sales teams and distributors respond to the first Jimi Hendrix album? And how did Mo know um, not to listen to him? And Steph's telling me I got a cue um, before I hand it to you. So let's go ahead and hear Fleetwood Max Monday Morning, which we're a little behind on our time. But anyway, this is Fleetwood Max Monday Morning from 1975, and we'll get there. That was Monday morning, the first track off Fleetwood Mac's 1975 self-titled album, the debut of Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks as part of Fleetwood Mac. But before we can get there, let's—I just wanted to hear that one story about how the distributors responded to Jimi Hendrix and how Mo knew he could go past his sales team and how and his distributors.
2: Well, you know, I mean, obviously the you know the mainstream executives. Um, Uh, You know, they didn't know what to make of an artist like Jimi Hendrix. I mean, this was music like they'd never heard before. And so when the advance on the record came in and got played at a a sales meeting, they were just, just like, what the hell is this? But Mo had kind of a uh, sort of a perpetual focus group because his, you know, the house where he was raising his family and and Encino had a pool and really nice, you know, a lot of open, welcoming space. And his boys would bring their, their friends over, these high school kids, you know, teenagers in the mid, you know, in late 60s. And, you know, Mo would come home from work with these acetate copies of records that, you know, weren't quite out yet. And if he was curious about how one or the other might do, you know, he would call all these kids together and sit them down and play them a record and say, well, what do you guys think of that? Do you like that? You know, and these, you know, uh, these people all, you know, these, uh, you know, there was a day when he came home with the, you know, the first Hendrix record, Are You Experienced? And he played it and the kids were just like, jaws on the floor like oh my god that's fantastic and so you know mo was smart enough to realize that you know the so-called experts in in you know in our company and everywhere else in pop culture are not as tuned into what the generation of people buying rock and roll records want to hear you know the people who are tuned in are these kids that are you know splashing around in my pool after school every day so he stuck with the record and it ended up selling i think like five million copies that year three million copies a lot you know moved a lot of vinyl in those days and you know and then he would take you know a band like the grateful dead and um basically the policy was okay their first record might not sell their second record might not sell their third record might not sell but as long as we think these are good records and they're going out and they're playing and they seem to be they seem to have a core audience we're going to stick with that audience and allow them to grow and you know and give them time to kind of you know not just discover their audience but also discover their own voice you know and so by like 1970 or so the grateful dead you know they kind of steer away from the seriously sort of outer galactic records they were making you know ox you know and and uh, 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 anthem of the Sun these weird avant-garde records that are kind of hard to get your arms around and then they just sort of naturally evolved into a more kind of funky sort of cosmic country band and put out working man's dead and then American Beauty and those records became hits you know suddenly their records are going gold so it really only took about four or five, you know, three, four years for the dead to start making money for the company. And, you know, and again, I mean, let's transition to Monday morning and Fleetwood Mac. I mean, you know, Mo signed Fleetwood Mac in 1969. And the first half dozen records that they made for Warners didn't sell well at all. I think one or two might have sold a few hundred thousand copies. I think they peaked at around 300,000 copies, uh, I think with bare trees in 1972. But then the record after that sold way fewer copies and, and you start getting a trend like that, especially in a band that was sort of chaotic, you know, at the time their first two sort of lead guitar players slash central figures, uh, left the band Peter Green sort of abandoned the band and then his replacement Jeremy Spencer developed a following but then suddenly he left the band and they were stuck you know you know but still Mo, they just sort of thought like you know what these are good records. We like these records. We like these guys. And when they tour, they get this kind of core audience coming out to their show in city after city after city. And let's just stick with them. And so, you know, uh, Mick Fleetwood went out and found Lindsay Buckingham who said, sure, I'll join the band, but I got to bring my girlfriend Stevie Nicks with me. And they were like, oh, okay, okay. And they put out that record in 1975 and it immediately sold like 10 times you know, as many copies as their most popular album to that point had sold. And, you know, they was essentially almost an entirely new band. And, of course, the album after that, Rumors, sold, you know, 10 times that. You know, I mean, more than 20 million copies and became, you know, for the longest time, the most popular album you know, anyone had ever made. And so it was that that music first philosophy, this idea of really committing to the artists and the music that paid off you know again and again and again and sometimes it was because an artist like The Dead or Fleetwood Mac would suddenly blossom into a you know a hugely popular act or sometimes it would be you know an act like 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 Van Dyke who made another half dozen records or so for Warner's you know all of which were celebrated critically none of which sold many copies but having Van Dyke associated with the label you know, people like Van Dyke and Captain Beefheart, these very kind of avant-garde sort of artists, artists, appealed to younger musicians and other musicians like, you know, you mentioned Peter Buck from R.E.M. You know, he grew up with this sense of, wow, you know, who knew that record companies could have personalities, you know, and have identities. And the coolest record company that he'd ever heard of was Warner Brothers because it had Van Dyke Parks on it you know, and Captain Beefard and all these weird artists. And so when his, you know, when Peter's band, REM, were, you know, their their contract with IRS, the indie, you know, the indie label uh, ended in 1987 and they were on the verge of much larger success and were looking for a mainstream record company who was gonna have a, a more of a global reach and be able to help them sell their records all across the planet. But on the other hand, not expect them to, you know, to make creative decisions that they didn't want to make, uh, you know, a let let them, you know, make the music they wanted to make. You know, they went to Warner Brothers. You know, that was one of the labels that they took most seriously and paid attention to and decided to trust. Uh, and so having Van Dyke Parks leads almost, you know. Not even all that indirectly leads directly to signing R.E.M., who then go on and sell 80 million records, you know, over the next 10 years.
1: And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Madonna's first single, Everybody, for Sire Records, which was absorbed by Warner Brothers. And, of course, The Material Girl goes on to be a massive success. Madonna's everybody, her first single for Sire Records. And there's so much we're skipping over. The whole Burbank Sound era, there's massive success with singer-songwriters like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. But the two characters that I wanna get into the story are a guy named Steve Ross who is not the first person to buy Warner Reprise. It's originally bought by a company named Seven Arts, who's more interested in the movie studio side. But Steve Ross ends up buying it, and he's the guy who puts them together with Atlantic and Electra, and later on David Geffen's Asylum. Tell us a little bit about Steve Ross, his management style, and his reign as the overarching head of the umbrella company of which Warner Brothers was a part.
2: Yeah. Well, Steve, what you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Seven Arts bought Warner's in uh, 1966, I think, 67. And, you know, those guys were most interested in the movie company and sort of thought that the pop music part of it was, you know, a regrettable yet you know, increasingly important, you know, necessary part of the company because that's where most of the money was coming in. Warner Brothers uh, movie company at the time was, you know, was not doing particularly well. You know, that turned around in the 70s. But um, when Seven Arts decided to get out of the business, this guy, Steve Ross, um, who was running a company that his in laws had founded and started with funeral homes and, you know, and then, and parking lots. And Steve helped, you know, was a very ambitious exec and was you know, trying to grow this company into something like a much larger, you know, multinational corporation, he was very enamored of show business. And and when he began, decided that he wanted to buy a TV network or possibly a movie company, he, you know, came across Warner Brothers and very quickly realized that, If he bought Warner Brothers, he wasn't buying a movie company that also had a record business. He was buying a record business that also had a movie company and fortunately, the record business was increasingly successful. The growth rate on Warner Brothers Records and it's associated with labels was just skyrocketing at the time. This is in around 1969. And Steve came in and, you know, I mean, he's a somewhat controversial figure. He was, uh, you know, one of the great uh, executives in terms of, you know, I mean, his, his superpower was, you know, were these corporate mergers and so, He merged their company with Time in 1990, you know, I mean, and, you know, and with Warners in in late 60s, early 70s, and was growing this huge, huge, you know, entertainment complex uh, built around this original sort of funeral home slash parking lot slash limousine rental company. Um, But... one of his great powers as as an executive was understanding that there was a lot he didn't know how to do. And so when he would get a successful executive like Mo Austin, Joe Smith or Ahmed Erdogan at, at Atlantic Records, you know, his policy with these guys was completely hands off. He would go to each of them and say, you know, when he met them and say, OK, here's, the, here's how it's going to work. Um, if you don't want to see me. Um, you don't we don't need to talk all year long. You know, we can have one conversation a year about, you know, how well the company did and if that goes well, you don't even need to ring me up for another year. You like just do what you do and I'll sit back and 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 be your biggest fan. And he essentially stuck with that and created an environment, you know, not just at the corporation, but also sort of filtering into the into the other companies, you know, particularly Warner Brothers, where, you know, a chief executive would hire and, you know, another executive and, you know, and say, okay do what you do. And I'm not going to tell, you know, I'm not going to look over your shoulder and try to micromanage you. So Steve essentially gave Mo and Joe and Amit and all these other guys, you know, all, you know, all the, you know, the elbow room that they needed to make whatever decisions they wanted to make and take care of their business the way they wanted to take care of it. And, uh, you know, and he wasn't going to second guess them. And a lot of times, you know, his executives, you know, the people in the corporate, and of it would be, you know, incredibly frustrated because they would want to get, you know, they'd want to have more, more influence over these companies. But, you know, but he would, but Steve would allow guys like Ahmed and Mo to, to just essentially thwart them. You know, at, at one point, you know, they'd sit down with him at that annual financial meeting and uh, Ahmed was notorious. They would say, well, what's your strategy for next year? And he would always say every year the same speech. He'd say, well, we're going to put some records out. Some of them are going to be hits and some of them aren't. And we won't know until we do it. So that's our strategy.
1: And he was right and very accurate. And unfortunately, Steve Ross was mortal. And shortly after he completed the Time Warner merger, he falls ill of cancer, passes away. And one of these executives takes over. And the point I want to get across at this point is Warner Brothers did not die because of Napster or any kind of massive unforeseen development. They they come crashing down. And it didn't die, but it's no longer the same. They come crashing down right before the very peak of the CD era. They miss out on enormous fortunes. I mean, not entirely. They still made money hand over fist in the 90s. But somebody comes along out of Steve Ross's company and changes things. Tell us about this guy and what he did that messed everything up.
2: Well, yeah. At some point, um, you know, Steve hired a, uh, an executive named Robert Morgado, and Morgado had come out of politics. Actually, he had been a top aide for the New York's Governor Hugh Carey, and um, you know, a pretty bright guy. But 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 he sort of spoke the language of power. And so when he came into Warner's, he was sort of a mid-level executive who reported to Steve Ross, and and he he sort of became Steve's hatchet man. You know, the company, even in the course of being incredibly. Successful, you know, they had their ups and downs. You know, the, you know, there were some years when the record company would fall off. You know, the record business would fall off. Sometimes it was, you know, generally was part of larger. Economic trends, and and then they invested heavily in the Atari video game company, which made unfathomable amounts of money for them uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, and essentially became, you know, the the economic engine of the entire company until like 1983, I think, when suddenly the bottom fell out of Atari's business. You know, the you know the video game business just, you know, the wheel spun and Atari hadn't kept up and, you know, and suddenly their stuff wasn't popular anymore. Uh, and there was a very, very steep fall off. Um, and when Steve was negotiating the merger with Time in the early 90s, that was another, you know, very, very sort of financially pressed period because, uh, you know, other companies want, you know, we're, you know, and, and we're, tr- we're trying to kind of undo the merger. I think uh, Rupert Murdoch at one point was trying to take over time and, you know, and so there were times when he'd have to, t- you know, unleash Morgado to go in and, you know, and, and take authority over parts of the business. Um, Morgado had his eye on the record business because he could see how, you know, that it was in, you know, such an economic driver for the industry and such a reliable moneymaker. But but he was the type of person coming out of politics who did not have the kind of hands-off attitude that you know that, that Steve Ross had and did not have Steve's ability to know how much he didn't know. And so as Steve Ross became more ill and preoccupied with trying to fight his cancer, uh, he ended up giving Morgado more power. And after Steve died, Morgado did get control over the music business and what his policy essentially was to disempower uh, Mo Austin and Ahmed Erdogan and the other executives who were still, you know, who ran you know, the CEOs of the record businesses. And as he told Joe Smith, who at that point, had, uh, I think was running capital records, he had left the company and he had left Warners in the mid 70s to take over um, uh, Electra. Uh, and then asylum and, you know, and then left the company and, and started working for capital. He bumped into him at some sort of industry event and they were talking about, you know, his new authority at Warner Brothers, you know, at, at the Warner Company. And uh, he, in reference to the, you know, Joe's former colleagues uh, running the the other companies at Warner Brothers Records, he said, well, we're coming for the Cowboys, essentially saying that he was going to either, you know, push, push aside or push out, you know, Mo and Ahmed and those guys. And Joe very intelligently just looked right at him and said, if it weren't for the Cowboys, you'd have nothing but morgado was not the type of person who could hear that and he ignored joe and essentially ran mo out of the you know ran mo out of warner brothers in in you know in 1994 and the astounding thing was that the company was incredibly successful at the time and had really other than a, a few out of character years had never not been immensely successful and was at that point still probably the most powerful, influential, you know, label in popular music. But Morgado thought that, well, I could probably do that job as well as anybody, um, you know. And if not me, then the guys that I can install into those jobs, you know, basically he thought that it was a formula and that, you know, pop music executives you know, were interchangeable like widgets. So, you know, take out the annoying one and put in a guy that you can control and everything will continue as, ord- you know, as usual. But that's not how it worked. And it wasn't really very long before the company began to fall apart. And in fact, uh, Gerald Levin, who had taken over uh, and become the CEO of Time Warner after Steve Ross died, you know, after six months of, of having Morgato and his team running a label, he fired him and essentially begged Moe to come back and run Warner Brothers records again. But, uh, um, but even then, he wasn't willing to give Moe the authority that he had had under Steve Ross. And so, you know, Moe said, no, thanks.
1: Yeah. And it's really, as I've done this series and learned more and more about the history of the record business, there's really this inflection point in the mid nineties, whether it's the success of Garth Brooks, kind of killing a renaissance in country music in the in the 1990s or uh, on another episode we talked about the iced tea body count fiasco where the record company initially tried to support freedom of speech for Ice-T, and this is Warner Brothers, so we're talking about Jared Le- Gerald Levin in particular was very supportive of Ice-T, but the backlash was so big and the company was so big that, you know, they had to worry about their Six Flags amusement parks and protests from police and so many things. They couldn't afford to protect ice tea the way that Mo Austin or Joe Smith could protect an outspoken artist a few decades earlier. So there's this sea change, and, you know— I don't know if it was avoidable, but it's pretty interesting to me. I mean, the 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 ascension of Robert Morgado and his bad decisions um clearly an own goal and self-inflicted damage and this record company that I'd never really given much thought, I I'd just seen them as this success machine and didn't realize until I read your book how benevolent they were and that they really were kind of carrying that I think of it as the Jimmy Carter Steve Jobs era that late 70s before we know Reagan's coming I was I was a little kid then but I can remember it I remember those first Apple computers and that just that vibe of the good guys are going to do this, and we're going to be okay. And you know, in the next five decades come along and relentlessly grind our face into, no, we're not. So um, a great book. There's so many stories in here we didn't get to, like uh, the guy who's practically running a Manson family, not a murder cult, but a cult, <laughs> uh, and puts out an album on Warner. The time that they sort of deliberately put out an album that's rumored to be the Beatles um, after the breakup called The Masked Marauders just so many great stories we didn't get to tales of of backroom intrigue between ahmed erdogan and david geffen and you know mo austin and all these just great stories great book peter ames carlin has been our guest the book is sonic boom the impossible rise of warner brother records from hendrix to fleetwood mac to madonna to prince thanks so much for coming on the show and hopefully we can get you back to talk about paul simon or bruce springsteen or any other your books that you've written
2: I'd love to, Nate. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boldfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week Nate welcomes Kit McIntosh to discuss his book Neon Screams, How Drill, Trap and Bashment Made Music New Again. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com